It's May the 1st and pro-Russian rebel Lenin is taking his men to secure the Donetsk prosecutor's office for the separatist cause. Every conspiracy theory about Ukraine starts somewhere. This one starts with Vice News' often harmful misunderstanding of the situation in Ukraine in 2014. And there ardent and extensive reporting on it, with terms like pro-Russian rebels and separatists. I'm Yulia, an independent political journalist, content creator, and most important of all, a concerned Ukrainian citizen. You're listening to FAQ U by Svidomi Media, your friendly neighborhood fact-check for Russia's special disinformation operation. Today, we'll discuss what really happened in Donetsk in 2014 from the perspective of a then 16-year-old born and raised in the city. Were there really pro-Russian crowds yearning to separate from Ukraine so much so that they decided to create their own independent republics? Or... Let's hear what Vice News reporters had to say at the time. With this latest takeover, eastern Ukraine's second-largest city, Donetsk, enters into the hands of the pro-Russian separatists. Headquartered in the regional state administration building, the pro-Russian rebels were forming their own local government and calling themselves the Donetsk People's Republic. In 11 days' time, they have decided to hold a referendum on the independence of Donetsk. Even though the makeshift parliament consents to hold a referendum, there seemed little doubt as to where the loyalties of the participants lay. The removal of the Ukrainian authorities from Donetsk left a power vacuum as well as a city to run. Various people and groups are now vying for positions and power within the would-be republic. In the run-up to the referendum, volunteers have been joining the cause, and people have taken to the streets to show their support for the People's Republic, as well as their hatred of Ukraine. You know what? FAQ this misguided, half-assed reporting. Let's sort it out. In 2014, Western media, Vice News in particular, took a liking to frequent reporting on what they have deemed to be the Ukrainian conflict, labeling the paid-by-Russia militia and their Russian troops as separatists. Through that perception of an independent group of people in the region of Donbass, whose culture and identity were supposedly persecuted, the narrative was formed that they wanted nothing more than to cease being Ukrainian and form their own sub-republics adjacent to Mother Russia. Despite a vast amount of evidence that the majority of these people were in fact not Ukrainian, but just Russian, as in brought in from Russia? The few actual Ukrainians were mostly criminals and petty thieves, paid off by Russia to join the cause. The really, truly Ukrainian people of Donbass were forced to flee en masse in fear of losing their lives due to their pro-Ukrainian position and identity. About 2.6 million people left their homes, most for Kyiv, Lviv, and other Ukrainian cities, becoming internally displaced persons. Some have admittedly left for Russia. Of the 600,000 who went to Russia, Many only did so because they were not allowed to leave to Ukrainian-controlled territories. A lot of them eventually found their ways back to Ukraine through third-party countries like Georgia. 
Joining us today is twice internally displaced person or IDP, Olya, more popularly known on the internet as at that Olga girl on TikTok. But before she makes her introduction, please be aware that this episode includes a section with frank descriptions of graphic violence. I'll give you a content warning right before it comes up. Without further ado, my name is Olga. I am from Donetsk, indeed, and I've lived there my whole life up until 16 and uh, Russia came over. Um, otherwise, I would probably still be there. I moved away to England because of it, I stayed here, wrote a master's dissertation on being a um, Ukrainian IDP slash refugee from Donetsk, and uh, I feel like this is one of my most important credentials because I've done loads of research on um, being a refugee um, or an IDP um, internally displaced person and having that identity. Let's start strong with the Russian identity in Donbass. User at Sean Hose In, hmm, I feel like he needs to be hosed down, says that, quote, Ukraine has been attacking ethnic Russians in the Donbass since 2014 the worst of which happened under Zelensky in the weeks right before Putin intervened, end quote. Do you consider yourself an ethnic Russian? Or did anyone of your peers? I've never noticed this sort of idea of being Russian in my surroundings. There wasn't an identity crisis that anyone was having. But I do have to say that people would be like, oh yeah, Donbass. We have these sort of phrases like and I have no idea how to translate it, but it's the miners sort of identity because it's the city of miners and everyone works so hard. And there was like a sort of identity of a hard worker slash miner, uh, even if you have no connection to being a miner. Um, but it was never separate from your Ukrainian identity. I wouldn't say that people identified as non-Ukrainian, but instead just people from Donbass. That wasn't a thing. Here we go with one of my personal favorite narratives. User at Spriter Team lovingly quotes Lavrov. We are not fighting for the territory in Ukraine. We are fighting for people, history, religion, the Russian language. End quote. Was Russian language persecuted in Donbass? We didn't have any language issues ever because it was quite simply put just Russian. Because all of the schools were in Russian, even if they claimed to be in Ukrainian. In my city, we had no schools that, that were completely in Ukrainian. And the one that was... Claiming to be just Ukrainian school, it actually wasn't funded as well, and it wasn't fully in Ukrainian, um, even if it claims to be. Like, on paper it would be, but de facto, that's not the case. We had Ukrainian twice a week, and Ukrainian literature twice a week, so that works out less than four hours. So no one really complained, no one was ever made to speak Ukrainian, that wasn't a thing. No one ever had an issue. Not even when they introduced Ukrainian dubbing over movies for the first time. Remember when they switched from Russian dubbing to Ukrainian and the first iterations of the dubbing were just so awkward and ridiculous? Did anyone have anything to say about that? 
like my brother for instance he he speaks ukrainian but he still prefers reading in russian and he still speaks russian he hasn't switched even now my older brother um but i don't remember him complaining for instance even though i never had a problem reading or listening to movies in ukrainian but he had because it just was uncomfortable um but even he and his friends i've never heard a complaint i've just heard jokes about like you said the weird translations <laughs> so olya what's the most annoying russian propaganda narrative for you personally it's just ridiculous to me as someone who went to school and we didn't have enough ukrainian and when i came back to kiev while still being in england but i wanted to do zenor so that if I don't get into uni or something in England or if, so that I have a choice to come back home and I had to study Ukrainian and I thought oh my god why <laughs> this is mental and to compare it to my younger brother who went to school in Kiev uh because we moved when he was 5 I think and he just speaks fluent russian and ukrainian because he speaks russian at home and in school he just speaks ukrainian and he doesn't have the only confusion he has is sometimes he he doesn't the letter u in russian he doesn't understand what this is like for him he didn't have rights in russian so he's like what is this <laughs> what is this letter and i'm thinking oh my god you're lucky little bastard because i didn't have the option it was all in russian it was just you had no choice and even if you were interested in your own culture it was so well in your own language because the culture was always there like we had the ukrainian shop next to me where you could buy like all the pretty little costumes and of course my mom would treat me to them because uh, she was um a teacher of ukrainian philology in university and uh, i would of course the year, the day of the language of course i would have to perform on stage in that university so i got pretty costume every year um <laughs> but uh, that was the extent of me connecting to my ukrainian culture because the rest was just you go to school you speak russian all the time you have uh, ukrainian literature twice a week and sometimes I remember what shocked me was Pushkin translated into Ukrainian and I was like why are we reading this why do we need more Pushkin I already read him in my Russian literature why do I have to read him in my Ukrainian literature I'm not interested in that <laughs> it was just so bizarre um yeah I think this narrative of kids in Donetsk weren't allowed to speak Russian is like we weren't allowed to speak Ukrainian because we didn't get any chance to and now i have peers of my age who shock me by saying i'm worried because i would love to switch to ukrainian but actually i'm so unarticulate i can't speak it properly and this is really not because they're pressured to speak ukrainian but because they're just ashamed because they never got a chance to properly speak it and surround themselves in the language and so this narrative of oh, weren't allowed to speak russian it's like weren't allowed to speak ukrainian it's such a reversal of it well it's what russia does like everything that happens is just reversed and this one is the one that bugs me so much as someone who personally suffered from not being able to not having the chance to speak ukrainian as much as i'd like to in my teenage years what about the infamous separatists who wanted to be russian and despised the ukrainian regime 
User at Den in the Outback says, quote, Why ignore why Russian Ukrainians became separatists? Why did the people in the Donbass want to separate from Ukraine after so many decades as Ukrainians? The elected Ukrainian government was toppled in 2014, and the new regime was Ukrainian nationalist and aggressively anti-Russian. End quote. So, um, the separatists? Basically, what they did was creating the identity is parasiting on what I mentioned before, where we identified as, oh, the working sort of oblasts, you know, we, we, we work so hard and we're such a hard working sort of region and it's all about work, work, work. And they sort of started to separate us when, oh, those people in the West and leave just drink their coffee while we're all in our minds breaking our backs and um because Donetsk even though it's a city with a million people in it it was still an older population compared to Kyiv and I think compared to Lviv as well and Odessa um even uh Donetsk was always older people or people that cared more about jobs more about new factories opening all of that and they took that and used that really well to divide us being like, oh, those lightheaded sort of head in the clouds, uh, banderas. <laughs> but the thing is, there wasn't even anything about bandera. No one like exploited that back then. I, I don't think I knew who bandera was until, <laughs> until uh, well, I, I've learned about him from the uh, Russian media. People that obviously were not from Donetsk, obviously did not live here, were protecting Lenin's statue, because we had the Lenin Square, and it was 10 pensioners standing with, like, a poster being like, oh, we were protecting Lenin, and I was like, mom, who are these people? <laughs> and my mom was just like, some idiots. <laughs> and even though my mom or my, my dad, like, they didn't have like a proper position on it and didn't really explain to me what was going on but it was clearly like oh these 10 idiots protecting Lenin like what's going on here it was like a village idiot sort of joke uh and then those people started appearing in front of the Oberhof Administration like the um municipal building I guess I could literally see it from my kitchen the the administration building because I lived right in the center it was very close to us, and uh, when it really started happening, when those protests next to it started happening, because, you know, they all, like, came into it and looted it and all that, I remember seeing those people and thinking, I, I don't know who you are. You don't look like us. You don't speak like us. We don't speak like this. Um, I saw them with my own eyes, and I was like, who are you? Because I know how people dress in Donetsk. P people in Kiev dress differently to people in Donetsk, for instance. My mom always said, oh, I love living in Kiev now because I don't have to dress up as much because people are relaxed. In Donetsk, everyone's like very, very proper, very sort of, I think maybe it's derived from post-Soviet era where you have to look your best all the time. So like, you know how people dress in each obelisk, you know, you've lived there and you understand how people look, how people dress, how people talk. And even as a 16 year old, I could understand instantly, you are not from here. Who are you? What are these flags you're holding? Because like, they instantly had flags. This was 
this was weird because I was like, what are these? <laughs> did you did you make them yourself? Like, is there a seamstress in every house just making these new flags? Um, the Imperial Russian flags, who would have those at home just laying there? I, I remember just thinking, like, this just does not make any sense to me at all. And um, suddenly we had loads of Ukrainian graffiti pop up as well. And I remember taking pictures with them and uh, thinking, oh, amazing. Like, we have a much more, like, patriotic stuff now. Um, because people were trying to protect it. And, and the my friends, school friends and stuff, went to Euromaidan and everything. So... It seemed like nothing was going to happen because everyone was like, well, those idiots are obviously, we don't know who they are. Um, and mostly missing tooth, a tooth or two. Um, older people dress really weird. You're thinking, oh, they're probably some maybe underprivileged poor people that got paid to be here. Uh, that's Titushki, <laughs> a term that was very popular in 2014. Um, and it seemed to be like there was a mutual understanding of that in public. So everyone was like, oh, nothing's happening. You know, this this is just going to pass. So obviously it didn't uh, because I remember it got violent and dangerous very quickly. Um, so even though we might have been noticing things changing, we weren't as alert as we probably should have been uh, because I remember, yeah, very 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 drastic especially i remember it well because i lived right next to it <laughs> how drastic the change was and how it turned sort of violent and looty i will have to say that i did move away before it got worse um i did see things like gunshots or people with guns etc um but i didn't hear the missiles as much uh, because we managed to move away quick, but my pretty much all of my friends stayed for the summer. It started in April, and they did hear things, and they really they said it was obviously scary, but they said it was very obviously not. It it wasn't basically it wasn't targeting civilians. That's what it was, regardless of which side it was. It wasn't like now where civilians are the target, like Russia makes it a target. It wasn't really like that. And I think the scale of the bombing, when people say Bambili Bambas, I'm like, well, okay, um, the scale of it was not what's happening now, where it's constant in Kiev. Uh, for instance, like when I talk to my mom, she's very casual about how many kinjals and etc. fell on them that day. Um, when I talk to people who stayed living there, for because I have like very close family friend who stayed living there all of these years, um, and no, I mean it was yeah, it it just wasn't what people are maybe imagining i don't know if they, they claim the ukraine was bombing their own people well so was donbass bombed by ukraine as user at martin gould says in a quote actually over 8,000 civilians were killed by kievan slash azov shelling and bombing of donbass between february 14th and the russian response in 2022 many of them children end quote what's your take 
I think it was a coping mechanism, but we were constantly watching Russian news and hysterically laughing because we were like, what like what are you talking about? Um because it was so obviously fake and it was happening so fast that we people who moved or people who stayed there would be calling each other like, Oh, have you seen this thing on the Russian news? Have you seen the crucified boy? Ha ha ha. <laughs> like how many boys have Ukrainians crucified today? Quick content warning. Oila's response contains graphic descriptions of torture. Listener's discretion is advised, and if you do not wish to hear it, please skip about five minutes forward. Yeah, so a very close family friend, uh, someone whose my dad named his first child after, um, and he named his first born after my dad, so they were like army friends. He um, got arrested by the Russian police. They said that he was given bribes. That was what they said he was doing. I don't think he wasn't, and I can't imagine a situation where he would involve himself in that. But it makes sense, I think. They were just... Because he remained pro-Ukrainian, and if there was even some hint of that, um, then that's it. You were going to be going into this. I like how now they have filtration camps. I think because they haven't polished the system back then, the filtration camp was different in that you would go to the torture chambers for a month and it was like a blank state. So they were charging him at for eight years, I think, for a bribe. Uh, that's what they were saying they were doing. Uh, but even if he wasn't guilty or like they ruled that he wasn't guilty, he would still have to stay there for 30 days. It was like a blank thing for everyone. And I'm not sure which one he stayed in because I don't want to say that it was Isolatia. And then it wasn't, uh, I'm not sure because there's many. Uh, and I don't remember now which one he said it was. So he was there for a month. Uh, his wife was still in Donetsk with him, uh, as were his kids. She had no contact with him. We had no contact. No one had any contact. No one knew whether he was dead or alive. For those 30 days, she kept coming there every day, asking about him. And we were trying to make any sort of calls, anything. But obviously, well, there's no nothing you can do about it. And I think they... I won't go into detail how they ruled about him being not guilty. But he was... His wife was given his passport after 30 days, his Ukrainian passport. And still, she doesn't know whether he's dead or alive. And then next day, I think they let him go. So that was 30 days. He lost... Uh, what, two stones? So like 10, 12 kg? He was, well, go Ukrainian army men. He wasn't in the army, but, you know, those uh, military dads. <laughs> he lost, yeah, 12 kg. Said he's seen things like what they did to him, the torture stuff were... I think the main thing they did, there were other, obviously, other prisoners, like taxi drivers mostly, and it was taxi drivers who helped Ukrainians escape from the net and those were punished by their eyes being gouged out with a spoon uh, and that was the punishment that they would get for helping people to get out and they made him so the family friend watch and that was his kind of torture and they'd take him every day and make him watch um, other people getting tortured uh, his personal one that they did to him 
Uh, he didn't tell us about the extent of the beatings, but what he did tell us, that was a daily thing. They would um, wake him up in the middle of the night or randomly take him out and shoot above his head or near his head and make him believe that he's about to get shot in the head. And then, like, last moment, they'd, you know, just shoot above or close. Um, so that was his story. The other one that I know was, I think a friend of my mom's it was, and it's her mom. So my mom has a friend and my friend has a mom who was in her 70s. And when she was, because there are checkpoints when you're driving, like there are now, um, when she was at the checkpoint, uh, she, a pensioner, got asked what her profession was. And she says, I'm a teacher. And they say, oh, what teacher? And she says, I'm a teacher of Ukrainian language. So they took her out of the car, this 70-something old woman, and she spent those 30 days with a blindfold on her head, basically not seeing anything and being tied. I don't think they taught it her much. She was just completely deprived of any senses because blindfold, tied, doesn't know what's happening. And it was the same thing where we no one knew what was going on because no communication for 30 days. And then I think the woman paid them off or something. That was basically it. They would capture people and you had to pay them off and then they would let them go. I think that's what her daughter did. And eventually they put her in a carpet, like you know in those movies that's what they do to dead bodies uh they put her in a carpet she was alive uh and threw her out at the back alley of a school and her daughter was basically trying to find her um and she eventually found her and she was alive and fine i don't know if she lived long after that i don't think so but um yeah that's how they freed her after 30 days uh, and they would just find any reason basically to capture people and because they just wanted bribes um, and yeah let's talk about Azov now at user a2 underscore incognita on twitter seems to think that quote uh-uh sweetie your rogue Azov units killed 6 million Donetsk children now your country needs to die justice always come end quote you are a child of Donbass, right? I remember the dreams of 18-year-old boys were, if I, if I was fit enough, I'd go to Azov. And like everyone, all of the boys were so radical and being like, oh, I'm not of age, but when I will be, I'll go and fight. And it's funny to me when it's like, oh, Azov kills Donetsk children. It's like Donetsk children were dreaming about getting into Azov, but the it was so strict to be there because basically you had to be so physically fit and everyone was like oh, if I only like didn't start smoking when I was 14 at the back of my school I could have done it <laughs> I just remember how everyone was so radical and straight away being like some Ukrainian and it wasn't um well yeah no one was talking about switching to Ukrainian or doing this or that it was always you know, we're Ukraine, we we didn't really speak about the language kind of well, issue that <laughs> the West speaks about so much. Um, it was just everyone had this clear idea of their identity as Ukrainian, and I remember this so well. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's what the mood of 16-year-old, 18-year-old kids back then. Um, I think... The reversal in the 
bots sort of conversations and the trolls conversations have been funny because my main points are that when they say Azov was killing Ukrainian kids, Ukrainian kids wanted to be Azov. <laughs> um, it was the coolest thing ever, basically, for them. When they say, oh, those Western radicals, I don't think you guys are as radical as we were back in 2014. <laughs> um when they say about the language again it's a reversal so yeah there's just a lot of reversal of narratives and i think every bot statement should be rethought into the complete opposite and that's how you know the truth what was the general reaction of the public to the quote-unquote arrival of the russians in donetsk and how did the invasion affect you I think definitely for me and most of my peers, the Ukrainian identity got so much stronger. Everyone was instantly switched on and everyone was instantly like, well, no, fuck Russia. We're not, you know, we're not them. Instantly, everyone realized what was happening. Like there were a couple of people whose parents were like, oh, Russia came. I can be some big general. And those kids were influenced by the parents. And it was usually people that you would expect to do that because they were usually one of those snitches in school. <laughs> just not nice kids and i just remember that it was very clear it was the minor like absolute minority i don't know maybe two or three kids whose parents were like oh i'm gonna go and join the russians and 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 they didn't even hide it in the Nesk, ukrainian people knew it wasn't ukrainian people the ones that were traitors to ukrainian state they knew what they were doing everyone knew <laughs> it was very obvious uh the Nesk, one million people but you know everyone it's like a big village I don't know what it made me feel about my future because I was already wanting to escape to England because I think the Nyetsk seemed too small for me. And I mean, I was very bad at physics and math. Well, not very bad, but not as good as uh, people who should be going to physics and math school. So I really wanted to leave just to a whole different country because I really loved England. And I thought, okay, uh, so now it makes sense to leave, especially when I came to Kiev. And I think as a 16-year-old, it was too big. It was too new. It was very scary. No one cared about you being an IDP. I had the IDP like um, document and I knew that in the metro, if you go to the metro, you should write for free as an IDP. And I literally had the woman, the what are they called, conductor, I don't know, woman uh, saying in my face, I don't know anything about this rule. I'm like, it's literally written right here. And she's like, well, I don't care. You still have to pay. My friend's parents struggled to get apartments because as soon as someone in Kiev would understand people from Donetsk, they would be like, now we don't want you to live here. We don't want to rent you the apartment. Uh, this was basically what my dissertation was on, like how difficult it was because the government did not really help. It was just you were left on your own. You were receiving 400 hryvnia, which even back then was literally nothing a month. There wasn't any like centralized programs. It was just chaos. I felt like, you know, I'm going to leave my parents to deal with this on their own. And I'm going to just leave. <laughs> it was quite tough. It was really crazy. My friends who stayed, they were like, oh, amazing. The capital. I love it. Oh, loads of people going to Lviv as well. 
it was either Lviv usually or Kiev. So the only person that I know that went to Russia, went to Moscow, she only went because her parents had relatives there and she was bullied all throughout and absolutely just destroyed and probably still goes to therapist about how much Russians bullied her for being Ukrainian and being pro-Ukrainian and she always wore like a bracelet and they absolutely hated her and made her life hell in school. So when you moved to England, what did it feel like to be there from Donetsk? Did an average Englishman understand what was going on or were they completely consumed by Russian propaganda? There are people that genuinely believe this. Even on the first day of the invasion, a friend of mine went to the vigil in Sussex University where I did my master's and my bachelor's and there was this Greek guy who was doing his PhD and he started explaining to him about Nazis in Ukraine and he was like, oh my God, it's the first day of the invasion and this is what you're talking about. And just the fact that these educated people have these ideas and they never even talked to someone from Ukraine. People in Brighton just love to chat. You come to you in the street, ask you where you're from, or you're drinking coffee, someone will have a conversation. And most of the time they have no idea what I mean when I say the war has been going on for nine years, they are so shocked. I see why it's so easy to manipulate them because the questions that they ask, even the people that support Ukraine, they'd be like, oh yeah, I support Ukraine. And then they're like, oh, is it true, by the way, that you wanted to be Russia? Was it like 50-50? And I'm just like, you're supporting Ukraine, but this is the question that you're asking me. For me, it's so bizarre because I don't know what world they live in. I don't understand what media they consume. And then I look at Telegraph, I look at BBC even, and I realize why they ask these questions because it's just crazy, the headlines that we're seeing. Oh, uh supposedly Russian-backed separatists. Why are we even using the word separatists? What is this term that you coined instead of just saying Russians? Like All of this media kerfuffled. I think I didn't understand the scale of it. And now that I do, only because the new invasion really exposed the media and how it talks about us, like we are some uncivilized scum that doesn't read books and was it suspicious that we have Goodreads accounts and we basically don't know what we want or like we don't know who we are. Back in school in the UK when I did my A-levels, it's like college, this teacher said, oh yeah, you know, countries where they don't go to university as much, like Ukraine. And I was like, wait a minute, 50% of you Brits go to uni in Ukraine, it's 90%. <laughs> it's close to 90% that at least have a bachelor's. What is this idea you have about us? It's crazy. And that'll be it from our guests today. If you'd like to know more truth about Donetsk, don't forget to follow Olya on TikTok at that Olga girl. Join me on the next episode as we continue to bring facts to the battlefield of Russia's special disinformation operation. And in the meanwhile, if you'd like to be filled in daily on everything that happens in Ukraine, as well as hear some sassy responses to Russian trolls, don't forget to follow me on YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram at Y-E-W-L-E-E-A. And extend that same courtesy to Svidomi Media, also linked in the description of the podcast. Well, cheers! And FAQU, Russia and your special disinformation operation.